Bonjour. I'm Terrence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live and almost every week from Café Terrence in Paris's Troisième Arrondissement. This program is being sponsored by a generous contribution from the Billy Cohn Collection. My guest today is Hugh Eakin, author of Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. Uh, welcome to the broadcast, Hugh. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, uh, in Paris, metaphorically. Are you back in New York? <laughs> Um, neither, actually. At the moment, I'm in the upper Midwest, of all places. So You're doing a book um, signing in Minneapolis? <laughs> I, I am going to be doing a, an event soon in Minneapolis. Um, I mean, the great thing about this book was it, it, it kind of is, has aspects that go around the country as well as Europe. So um, I, hope, I hope people will be interested in it wherever they're seated <laughs> yeah, well i guess well yeah in my case uh yeah they're pretty much all over the place so the the vast majority of my readership and and listenership is uh, is, is in america but the i just happen to be here fortunately the uh and this is now you're writing for foreign affairs but this is your first book is that correct uh yeah that's right i mean technically um i've 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 done uh, chapters of other books, but this is my first uh, sort of uh, uh, gazamp Kuntz work, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, what? Uh, why this subject? I mean, to tackle something as deep and rich and uh, profound as this as a first book is quite a uh, quite a challenge. What prompted that? Well, I've been writing about the art world for a long time, uh, almost since I became a journalist. Um, so over the past two decades, I've, I've been always been fascinated by museums and this kind of crazy world apart that how did they, you know, how they came into being, where does all that stuff come from? Um, the characters that populate them. I mean, it, it, museums to me always offered this whole world. And um, I guess, um, you know, a story like this um, is really about the origins in a way of, of the art world we know today. And it, I think part, part of it, part of it is the story was, was such a great story to begin with, but it also, I think really captured a lot of larger, issues that we probably don't really understand today when we see these, you know, huge dollar signs. Well, absolutely. And you, you, you talked about several people who may not be as well known, but they will be now that the book is out. I just want to first remark, when I saw the, the title, Picasso's War, before I saw the subtitle, I thought we were going to be talking about what he did during the war, how he survived the occupation. But that's another book and another discussion. Uh, but let's go back and start start with Pablo, uh, and then let's. Uh, I want to talk particularly about John Quinn. And why don't we start with John Quinn, who very few people, uh, I would think, in the lay world uh, know about. Yet was probably uh, perhaps an even greater figure than Rosenberg and Kahnweiler and uh, you know Albert Barr. Uh, talk about John Quinn. Let's hear about him. Yeah, an amazing, amazing figure, really, uh, and and I would say probably to totally forgotten today, really, um, which is you know 
partly accident of history, but partly actually, you know, what happened to his, uh, you know, this is a man who was so huge in his time. Um, I mean, it's hard to think of a figure today who's even parallel. So, you know, he's, he's, he's a self-made Irish American, brilliant finance lawyer. Um, you know, we, today we would say, oh, a wall street guy, but you know, this is the turn of the century. He's, he breaks into this world entirely, you know, on his own, really. Um, what, prompt, and, what prompted that? I let you uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. So, you know, both parents were immigrants from the potato famine in Ireland, uh, mid-19th century. He grows up in a small um, Ohio uh, community. And, uh, you know, voracious reader, he's reading Thomas Hardy, <laughs> you know, this um, uh, small town, 19th century Ohio. It's 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 really amazing that he's he's already on to European literature and uh, he's super driven and he's this very distinctive looking guy. You know, he's very tall, um, kind of, uh, you know, handsome. A uh, well-built. Um, he looks like he could be a, a statesman, and in fact, during his career, at one point, he's actually tapped um, um, to be uh, the Democratic um, uh, candidate for senator of New York. Um, and uh, he, he he kind of dabbles in politics. He knows all these people in Washington, uh, partly because uh, his first sort of way out of the Midwest is that he. Um, ha happens to come into view of the Ohio governor uh, at the time, who then goes on to be uh, Treasury Secretary um, at the turn of the century, um, so in the 1890s. And so he's in Washington, you know, uh, he hasn't finished college yet. Um, and, uh, you know, he goes to Georgetown night school while he's working at the Treasury, and he goes on to Harvard Law School. Um, and then, you know, by the time he's 24, 25, he's arrived in New York City. He's this brilliant um, kind of whiz kid lawyer who is doing, um, you know, fancy financial law for uh, some of the major banks. He becomes the um, um, legal uh, counsel for the stock exchange, the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, so, I mean, if you if you saw his profile up until then, there would be nothing about, you know, Picasso or James Joyce or Matisse or, you know, any of these characters who he be, becomes so close to. You know, he's a, you know, he could be a figure just who joins the establishment uh, of the time, but, but, but that's not at all the case. You know, he, he's actually a radical at heart and uh, he's incredibly restless. And within a few years, uh, his work is really not... Um, you know, uh, consuming all his energy. He's really interested in culture. And what he sees is this incredibly conservative kind of backwater um, as he comes to realize that New York City kind at the time... Kind of living time, in the 17th century. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, the, the kind of reigning figures of this era, this is sort of late Gilded Age New York, you know, J.P. Morgan and... Stanford uh, White. Uh, Stanford White, Henry Clay Frick, uh, these big kind of robber baron figures where who really don't have a sense of culture. What they have is a sense of they want prestige. And uh, I mean, that's that's a little it's unfair. It's kind of funny how people yeah. don't change, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, but they're buying up art like crazy. So, so at this moment in time, uh, early 20th century New York, art is a kind of obsession. And you see it in like, you know, the, some of the great Edith Wharton novels, mm-hmm. um, you know, the characters have these dress up parties where they have to dress up as like figures from a Titian painting. Um, but, but they're obsessed with old Europe. <laughs> you know, they want to have the prestige. They want to, they want to belong to the same kind of a social set that they imagine, you know, the kind of British, um, aristocratic collections that they're buying up and, um, or, you know, it's a fallen Italian accounts. Um, you know, if you can buy a, a, a painting that belonged to the Medici, um, it's far more valuable than, you know, just some, so, so everything has to have this sort of pedigree that, that, that is being chased. And, and Quinn comes along and he's, you know, <laughs> he's seen, he's totally baffled by this. You know, he thinks, you know, this isn't, we're a new country on the make. Why are we buying all this old art? We should be, you know, we should be at the forefront. Did he, did he have a, uh, an immediate sense of, of taste for what was new or he just was rebelling to the status quo? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I think if, 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 if you if, if you if you follow my account, what's what's really kind of uh, thrilling for me was that you know he he knows almost nothing. I mean, he has not seen a modern painting, um, you know, well into his uh, you know into he's he's established in New York and he thinks of himself as as kind of uh, into the new, but. Uh, part of the problem is that the new art of Paris is so radical and so new that it hasn't even really gotten out to, uh, I, I mean, a man as cultured as John Quinn and this, it, you know, his idea of Europe, because he's Irish American, is the British Isles. He's going to London. He's going to Dublin um, almost every summer um, as soon as he starts making money and, uh, you know, he has all these Irish friends, Ireland is in the middle of this big literary Renaissance. He, he, he quickly, you know, in his first, this is typical Quinn in his first trip to Dublin, he becomes friends with the entire Yates family and, uh, Willie Yates, you know, WB Yates, um, is, is, you know, at the forefront of the Irish literary Renaissance, but completely unknown in the United States at the time. And this is like 1902, 1903. Quinn decides, oh, let's bring him to America. And he organizes this, uh, you know, what we would think of as like a lecture tour for uh, W.B. Yeats, this unknown Irish poet. But uh, Quinn is so good at this promotion that by the end of this tour, and it goes on for months, he sends him to, you know, the major universities, you know, Carnegie Hall, um, cities on the West Coast. Um, cities in the Midwest. Uh, he even arranges an appointment uh, at the White House. So um, Yates meets um, Teddy Roosevelt. He's kind of like um, the, the Bernays of uh, publicity. Yeah, exactly. And and Quinn, because uh, because of his interests, he has all these connections to newspaper editors. He loves newspapers and and magazines. And so every time he sends. Yates to another town. He's like uh, telegramming the the editor of the local paper. You know, the San Francisco Chronicle does a big spread on this you know unknown poet, and they fill the house. And so he's really good at this kind of uh, promotion, cultural promotion. Um, and 
I think that kind of becomes a model for him later when he when he when when he discovers um, uh, avant-garde art and he realizes that you you can actually change um, American taste. Um, well, one of the things you touched on that I was not aware of was the law of 1909. So not only was there the, I, I guess the ambivalence to the new, but there were legal things that blocked uh, art coming from Europe. Yeah, that's true, and and that's a it, that that's a kind of beautiful example of of the sort of power structure of New York at the time. So, so, and this fits right into the kind of Gilded Age progressive era debate about whether there should be high tariffs or low tariffs. And uh, so, in the late nineteenth century, you have all these sort of protected uh, protectionist tariffs of of all different sectors of the economy. And including luxury goods, and uh, initially fine art is included in luxury goods. So you're bringing art from Europe that's going to have a heavy tax on it. And at the Gilded, you know, during these 1890s, early 1900s, all of these sort of uber wealthy collectors like J.P. Morgan, Isabella Stewart Gardner, um, um, the, the, some of the Philadelphia. Yeah, the yeah, Barnes, yeah. Alfred Barnes. All, all of those characters um, are struggling because um, they are hit with these huge tax um, penalties when they try to bring it back. And, and for, for J.P. Morgan, it becomes kind of a threat. Um, he has this estate in Great Britain, and he actually, you know, he says, basically, I'm not going to bring my you know, at the time, probably the most valuable collection in the world um, that had been acquired on the art market. I'm not going to bring it back to the United States. I'm going to keep it in in Great Britain. I might even give it to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London instead of the Metropolitan. J.P. Morgan is at the time, he's actually chairman of the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So this is a very, uh, you know, uh, a, a palpable threat in Washington, and he manages to get this tariff law changed in this kind of peculiar way, which is that it, art that is old, so older than um, older than twenty years, um, is is untaxed, duty free, can be brought in, which basically is everything that J.P. Morgan has bought, and, and that's the 1909 law, but what it doesn't do, or what it does do, is that it continues to tax modern art. So anything 20 year, years old or less, basically anything that's been produced by an artist who is a, a, living, a, a living artist, a living artist, yeah, as as Quinn calls it, living art, uh, as opposed to dead art. He has this great way of describing. He said that it's just dead art if if the artist is no longer alive. Um, is taxed at a at a pretty steep rate, and it's hitting people like Quinn, who are not wealthy. I mean, Quinn Quinn was making money now, but he was not. He was nowhere close to this kind of um, the financier class. Uh, he, as he always said, you know, I spend I spend everything I earn. Um, he he worked really hard and spent everything he had on on art and books. Uh, for him, this tax was was onerous and also, as he saw it, pre essentially preventing a modern art market from developing in the United States. I mean, art dealers themselves didn't want to deal with this tax. You know, why bring in this new radical art that, you know, didn't really have a market yet 
and in addition was was tax when you could bring in old paintings which had a had this huge market uh, even even when they were fake as it turned out that there were quite a quite a lot of fakes on the market at the time um, that so the market itself was biased against uh, modern art partly because of tax laws um, and that was reinforcing this kind of conservative taste and so so Quinn Quinn as this finance lawyer who's also interested in art immediately seizes on to this 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 strange 1909 law and he says you know we this has to be this has to be changed and he actually sort of starts this campaign this kind of quixotic one-man campaign in Washington um, a few years later um, when Woodrow Wilson comes to power and Wilson you know his 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 main campaign theme is I'm going to tariff reform. Uh, we're going to get rid of all these tariffs. So for John Quinn, he thinks, okay, here's our moment to uh, get rid of this, this art tax. Well, you know, to jump over to Europe, uh, somewhat parallel, perhaps a few years after, uh, Russia was the big mar uh, market for modern art uh, prior to the revolution. The Shechem, there have been a couple That's of right. huge no. exhibits here in, in Paris in the last couple of years of the uh, two wealthy Russians who uh, accumulated an enormous amount of modern art. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Sergei Shukin mm -hmm. and um, uh, Ivan Morozov, these two Russian magnates. Fabulous exhibits uh, here in Paris. Um, which, 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 those exhibits uh, for 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 people who who have seen them, I saw the first of those two, uh, absolutely amazing. And one of the amazing things about them was that all that art had been essentially uh, locked away from from Western audiences for 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 almost a century. Um, and uh, this, that story is part of this story because. At the time that John Quinn is discovering modern art in the United States, the United States is really not even in the game of the international art market, if we're thinking of contemporary art. The, the leading countries are czarist Russia and um, imperial Germany. Uh, you know, these two old European countries actually had were at the forefront of supporting the new and most radical art coming out of Paris. And in fact, in fact, even in Paris, you wouldn't actually see a lot of the new art. You know, uh, uh, the, uh, Tannweiler, um, who was Picasso, Picasso's early dealer who figured out this market, he didn't even try to sell to um, the, the French art market. His, his storefront in, in Paris really wasn't a showroom. I mean, you had to go in, he, you had to sort of know um, what you were looking for because his, his main markets were in Germany and, and Russia. Um, so I, it's also a geopolitical story, which is really interesting. Go ahead. Um, no, so, so um, I think one, one of the challenges if you were in the United States and and sort of becoming interested in modern art was how you know how does the U.S. get into this game, which is completely oriented in a different um, in a different direction at that time, um, so much so that um, you know the 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 avant-garde dealers in Paris who had discovered um, the sort of Paris school artists were not even really 
that interested in the United States at the time. They didn't. They didn't look at it and say, "Oh, here's this potential market." Um, that happened a little later, um, but also it was it was it was partly geopolitical events that changed that, and and everything shifts with uh, the First World War, which kind of destroys um, those that Russian market and um, kind of leaves everything in question. Where where is the market going to go? In fact. A lot of the art disappears altogether um, as 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 a result of the war, and uh, there are art seizures, um, which is a, which is another interesting um, part of the story. Well, also you you know you go back to Picasso, who had not achieved, I guess, the level of notoriety or fame at this point, and you mentioned uh, Kahnweiler, who was his first uh, gallerist, and then uh, Paul Rosenberg at the on the Hubo Sea. Talk a little bit about the two of them. Uh, certainly, Rosenberg became far more important when he, he moved to the United States and the impact they had on, on Picasso's career. Yeah, well, these, these two figures are so interesting because they, they have also very Jewish, dis- which was a, a problem yeah. in, some, in some locations. Yes, they're they're both Jewish. Um, um, Kahnweiler uh, is a, a, a is a German Jew. He arrives in Paris um, as a very young man um, uh, in um, uh, nineteen uh, the the aughts, um, 1905-1906. and in nineteen oh seven. I mean, he knows nothing about uh, the art market or art dealing. He just he he's been groomed to be uh, a banker, and he's sent to Paris um, from um, uh, from from Mannheim, where 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 he grows up, and um, he decides sort of overnight that no, what he what he'd rather do is is be an art dealer. Not only that, but he wants to be an art dealer only in the most radical new art. He has no interest, <laughs> as as he said later, I had no interest in in selling Cezanne. <laughs> which you know Cezanne is pretty radical at the time if you're in the United States but he you know uh this young young guy in Paris he really has a taste for a yeah, very for young guy at the time uh, very young guy yeah I mean he opens his gallery he's in his early 20s um and um he's not you couldn't say he's immediately successful but he he has a lot of um capital uh i mean he comes from a fairly wealthy background and and he he's able to borrow some money from a wealthy uncle who kind of decides to humor him for a year you know he'll come back and 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 join join the bank <laughs> after a year um get it but, out of his system get it get it out of his system um and no he's he's entirely smitten with this world he makes friends with these artists and he develops a whole new model of of dealing with contemporary artists, he wants to buy out their production, which is essentially saying, you know, putting putting this group of artists on contract, and everything they produce goes to his um, gallery, which is a kind of it's kind of a a, a, a crazy concept if you think of it at the time. I mean, these are artists whose work had no um, no perceived uh, value yet. Perceived value, exactly. Um, there really wasn't a critical uh, consensus that they were great artists, and here he was picking them out one by one. You know, Andre Durand, um, uh, you know, Georges Braque, um, and of course Picasso. Um, and at one point he says, "You know, I think I have all of the great artists except 
he's really frustrated he never managed to get Matisse into his gallery, but he really knew. Um, and and his choices were not off. You know, he, there weren't minor artists in um, in his fold. You know, the, the Dutch artist um, Van Dongen um, was briefly in his gallery, but even even you know, and he was you know maybe today we'd say a lesser artist, but you know, very much a museum artist today. So there wasn't uh, there weren't wrong choices. Um, just like John Quinn, he had this sense of of that this was this great moment in in art history uh the 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 fauvists were transforming the use of color and the the this group of cubists were really uh kind of um rebuilding the foundations of of perception and um and um it, it was such an exciting moment for him but he's on to this well before there's any sense of a market and partly i think from his international sensibility, he's this German in Paris who's, you know, from the banking world, which is inherently international. He has almost effortlessly able to make these connections with the kind of connoisseur world of, of, of people like, like Sergei Shukin, who is this, you know, maverick, um, but colossally rich textile merchant in Moscow. And, you know, he's interested in modern art already by the time he meets Kahnweiler and Kahnweiler persuades him to buy a, a Picasso. <laughs> and, and I think he, the first one he buys, he says, you know, I kept looking at it and it was like, like chewing shards of glass, <laughs> but, 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 but he bought it and he got used to it and, and, and soon he came to love it. And then he came back for more. And, and at that point, there's a moment in 1909 or 1910 when Picasso is pretty deep into uh, the the one of the more difficult phases of Cubism, and and Shukin is sort of the only one in the world who's buying these 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 paintings at that moment. But Conweiler has created enough, just enough of a of a of a boutique market to to support the gallery and to allow him to keep buying. But mostly what he's doing is building up this huge inventory because he's, you know, everything these these artists produce goes to his gallery. And the artists have this kind of idyllic situation. Um, they don't have to think about the market. They're not trying to do, you know, uh, society portraits to pay for their their experiments. They're just... Um, wasn't Man Ray taking photographs to support his painting? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only turned out to be a hell of a photographer at the same time. I want yeah, to show yeah, well, Go ahead. No, I say, I, I'm so glad you mentioned Man Ray because Man Ray has a part in this story as as probably in any story about art, the, the Paris art world. And that wh what I love about how Man Ray comes into the story is that John Quinn, as he becomes um, more and more a collector of the avant-garde in Paris, he's not able to go to Paris. Uh, this is, I mean, this is a, kind of a supreme irony that one of the greatest collectors of the of the early 20th century Paris art world only made two trips to Paris uh, in his life, and you know, nearly all of his purchases, aside from during those trips, he did long distance. And how did he do that? He had Man Ray <laughs> taking pictures for him, black and white photographs, high quality black and white photographs of of you know, Henri Rousseau paintings or Picassos or Brock's. And, and he, he would be very demanding about these pictures. And there's this great part where 
um, Man Ray meets Picasso for the first time, actually, because Quinn needs photographs. And Picasso doesn't want to want any any professional photographers in his studio. He's nervous because he's going behind the back of his dealer. He's selling directly to Quinn. And he wanted to take his own pictures. And Quinn is like, no, I don't want these snapshots that Picasso took of his own paintings. He wants a professional picture so he can decide. So, so eventually the solution is Man Ray, who's this brilliant, um, you know, brilliant young, young um, surrealist, but who also happens to be an astonishing photographer and who can be trusted um, to go to Picasso's studio and not be found out and take these pictures um, so that... So well, he, was that a, he was a kid from Brooklyn, I think, via Philadelphia. So he, he knew how to get around. Yeah. Knew how to make things happen. I, I want to jump forward to 1929, the, uh, the Depression, and the Museum of Modern Art. You know, so many of us, particularly like myself, who grew up in Brooklyn, uh, took it for granted. You know, our perception was these painters existed. It was easy for them. Uh, we went to see their work, uh, but it was not the case. Talk about Alfred Barr and the the, the development of the Museum of Modern Art. Well, I, I think I, I have to admit that was that was true for me as well. You know, when I started this book, you know, I, I think there was a sense that oh, uh, the Museum of Modern Art MoMA was always there. You know, <laughs> it was always this great, huge kind of cathedral of of twentieth century masterpieces and. It, it required this prestigious act of time travel to, to get back to this moment when it actually wasn't there. And then when it was there, it was such a fledgling institution that um, I think forgotten today that, that it, it really almost didn't survive. I mean, it, it, it started at the most inauspicious moment probably of the entire 20th century, you know, <laughs> a week after... Uh, the great stock market crash of 1929. This new museum opens its doors. It's not only a new museum, but it has no collection. It has no permanent home. It's in a rented. It has no ground floor. Has no ground floor. It's in a rented office tower. Um, it's and uh, it has no art, you know, <laughs> and it's showing. A, it's it's dedicated to a kind of art that hasn't really been proven yet. So. It had, you know, sort of three strikes against it right at the start. And um, I, 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 I think that early story is so interesting. So Alfred Barr is the, the founding director, and he's chosen kind of um, just on the strength of, um, so he has this, this uh, you know, well-connected mentor at Harvard, uh, Paul Sachs, who knows the... the From Goldman the, so, Sachs. Exactly. Yeah. And he's another like he's another Conweiler in the sense that he left a banking family to devote himself to to the art world. Um, and he kind of pioneers this this art course at Harvard, which is training uh, a new generation of, of museum leaders. And Alfred Barr is one of the first uh, products of this um, this this program at Harvard. I mean, he actually helps Sachs uh, design it in in some ways, and this is in the twenties. But he's still just a a, a grad student, um, you know, a young kid um, who's never run any kind of institution before, uh, let alone one that hasn't existed and is kind of being invented um, as it goes along. And uh, you know, there's a kind of legend about the the these three society women who are the, the sort of main backers of the museum. And, you know, 
Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, um, um, uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s uh, wife is mm. the sort of main force behind it. But what what we what we forgot to, what we've forgotten today, I think, is that there really wasn't Rockefeller money there at the beginning. Um, Junior, uh, as uh, John D. Rockefeller was was known as, he hated modern art. He couldn't stand it. He wouldn't let. Uh, when Abby brought home uh, modern paintings, and they were hardly—I mean, what what she was bringing home were were, were not <laughs> Cubist um, pieces. These were like you know maybe a Cezanne. Um, he he wouldn't have it displayed anywhere in the public rooms, and she had to she had to come up with. Uh, I think a nur- I, th- I think she she kind of retrofitted a nursery on one of the floors of the the Rockefeller building to be. Well, this just underscores the importance of women in culture. I'm gonna before we sign off, I'm gonna read a quote for, not at this moment that FDR made at the insistence of Eleanor, who also supported modern art and many things, and and of course Mrs. Guggenheim, Simon Guggenheim, uh, contributed enormously to the success or the, uh, yes, yeah, to the vitality and, and longevity of, of that museum as well. I think that's right. I mean, one of the themes through this that that that, that I tried to um, keep through through the entire book was the fact that there were these very strong um, women in the story, and in the case of Quinn. His his partner um, uh, Jean Foster, uh, who was his companion during his sort of spectacular final years of collecting, she was as as much of a force as 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 he was. Um, and in the case of Alfred Barr, a generation later, um, you know, um, Marga Barr, his wife. Uh, I mean, she was the one. You know, the, the 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 it's it's funny to imagine Alfred Barr in Europe every year going to Europe, chasing down paintings. He couldn't really speak French. <laughs> you know, here's a man who has made Paris his, his career, understanding the Paris art world. He couldn't really speak French, and he relied on Marga, his uh, Irish-Italian wife, who spoke four or five languages, to be his kind of interpreter. Um, and sometimes she went in his stead. Um, so there were, yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, there were these powerful women throughout the period who fundamentally shaped the story and um, have been, I think, largely forgotten today. So so I think that's an interesting part of the oh, There's so the much uh, of interest in so many areas that we could discuss that, unfortunately, I don't have enough time for today. But I do want to finish and talk about Guernica and its two openings, but I want to to first quote FDR in a speech that he made prior to that exhibit. Uh, The arts cannot thrive except where men are free to be themselves and to be in charge of the discipline of their own energies and orders. The conditions for democracy and for art are one and the same, and how evocative of a crazy world we're living in today. But 1937, uh, after the horrific experience at Guernica. Uh, Picasso painted it for the 1937 exhibit in Paris, and it was not terribly successful, but it was when it finally got to New York. Talk about that painting, uh, what it's meant to, to the art world, what it's meant to uh, to New York as it resided. I saw it initially uh, at, the, at the Modern, and what it says about uh, art as, as a political force. 
Yeah, that's that's such a such a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, I actually did a a kind of expansion of this from the book in in an article I wrote for The Atlantic um, um, this summer. And uh, here is the most probably, you know, if not the most the the most known painting of the 20th century. Um, So little about what we thought we knew about it actually turns out to be true. And I think it's, it's really interesting to go back and look what, what actually happened between 1937 um, when, when Picasso conceives it and when it finally kind of becomes this international sensation really um, when it, when it reaches the United States. And uh, this is the Spanish war you know, the first um, aerial bombing by, this is the Condor Legion, the Nazi uh, uh, Air Force is experimenting with. Practice run for the Luftwaffe. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, (laughs) Picasso at the time is not a political artist in the least. He's really, uh, I think that subsequent reputation has given him a a more glorified role in the Spanish War than than he perhaps deserves, certainly up until the moment of Guernica. Um, he's in Paris. Uh, he's, he's, he's at the Café de Flore every day. He's hanging out. He's really trying hard not to think about the war. And there are all these accounts of it from his friends at the time, just noticing that he's just not, um, he's, he's really disengaged. And it's this shocking um, atrocity in, 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 in Guernica, of this Basque town in, in northern Spain, it, it kind of a, a, awakens uh, awakens the beast in him, and and he just uh, sort of explodes. And we know that story: how he, uh, you know, produces this painting in thirty five days, this huge mural. And but but then the the next thing that happens is is not what we expect. It goes on view at the Paris Expo. This is you know, one of the biggest worldwide audiences you can get in the 30s. I mean, millions and millions of people visit this expo over the course of the summer. There's there's hardly a mention of the painting. It's, it's entirely ignored by the French press. Um, there are a few reviews that are extremely negative. Uh, people like Le Corbusier, who actually, Le Corbusier, writes a, a, an article reviewing all of the murals, because there are lots of these murals at the expo, and he singles out Guernica as, <laughs> as the, the worst of them. You know, it, it, it just fails. And um, nobody wants to see this really. Um, it, and partly it's, it's so dark. And, you know, this is this moment, even though it's the late 30s and, you know, fascism is on the march, it's still this moment of kind of optimism. And nobody wants this this dark, horrendous, horrific, um, universally, um, a, you know, agony of, 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 this, of this picture. And it's really two years later when, when through, you know, a serendipitous series of events that um, Alfred Barr is able to bring it to the Museum of Modern Art, and it, so it arrives in May 1939. That's when we have those those that FDR speech, um, and you know May 1939. It's already clear war is on the horizon. That speech is just uh, I mean it, it all it's all but there that. Um, Do you know who wrote the speech? 
Uh, I don't. No, I, I would love to know that. Um, but like but Ted I, I'm Sorensen sure... quality of speech writing. I'm sorry. Ted Sorensen quality of speech writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's such a resonant speech, and here it is on behalf of modern art, and um, that's a that's a real turning point. And to to I mean uh, to understand that you, you you'll have to read the book, but but the 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 short of it is is that Alfred Barr has spent. The, the entire decade of the 30s trying to make this case for modern art for the American public. And part of the issue is, is that it's seen as this kind of hothouse, bohemian, out of touch, um, what does it say to Depression-era America? There's a lot of doubt about modern art in the 1930s. But by the end of the 30s, now you, you, you can no longer, it's, it's as if <laughs> you, you have to choose sides. Uh, here, here are the here are the fascists. They're bombing. They're destroying modern life in Europe. And here are the modern artists. They're protesting against it. And and here, all in all, in one painting, you have Picasso making the case why modern art is so vital and so important. And you have Roosevelt saying, "Yeah, this is the bedrock of 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 democracy." Well, you know, as, Dem as you say he was not particularly political. I, I, I have not read any of John Richardson's work, but he probably devoted uh, 100 pages to figuring out what was going on in Picasso's mind uh, when, he, when he finally uh, approached the, uh, the work. Anyway, I, I just want to reiterate your comment. Buy and read the book, Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. I certainly learned an enor enormous about, amount about art through this book. And I will take those thoughts when I when I look at, at paintings in the future, and I I encourage the audience uh, to do the same. Uh, you once again, congratulations on a on a great book. I hope you have tremendous success. I hope up there in the frozen tundra of Minneapolis, uh, they decide to buy a few books as well. And uh, once again, thank you great. for joining me today. Thank you, Terrence. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at. Terrence at paris-expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at paris-expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.